0: Hi, Vanessa here. We have been busy over here working on our next season of Hot and Bothered. And in the meantime, as you know, we have been creating Patreon content all about Austin's other novels, the non-Pride and Prejudice novels. But you here in the main feed haven't heard from me in a while. And I figured you probably missed me. And who am I to disappoint you? And so we thought that we would drop one of those Patreon perks here. This is a conversation between me and the great Margaret H. Wilson, who is a cultural critic and faculty member and communication coordinator here at Not sorry, Productions, about Austen's last completed novel, Persuasion. Persuasion actually was released posthumously. It's the last novel that she completed before she died. And I hope that you enjoy this extra little conversation between me and Margaret H. Willison. Thanks,
1: and I'll talk to you soon. Margaret, welcome. Hi, Vanessa. I am extremely honored to be the person you talk about Persuasion with.
0: I'm so excited to learn from you about Persuasion. Okay, just for those of our listeners who either haven't read it or haven't read it in a long time, can you give us what we nominally call a thirty-second recap? <laughs> but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna time you. So, a thirty-second recap on Persuasion.
1: Sure. So, Persuasion is about Anne Elliot, who is the middle daughter of a spendthrift, vain baronet, Sir Walter Elliot. When she was 17, she got engaged to a young naval captain of no notable family with no money, and despite being very much in love with him, was talked out of pursuing that engagement from her very dear friend, Lady Russell. Was persuaded. One might even say, yeah. Mm. Exactly. And um, the book opens 10 years later when the spendthrift baronet must rent his house out to tenants because he's so far in debt and uh, to camp to Bath and the tenants that he rents out to happen to be the sister of the aforementioned naval captain Frederick Wentworth and this throws Anne and Captain Wentworth Bath together and um, through some twists and turns perhaps their love is reignited well done also I love the perhaps at the end well I kind of want to spoil things for people if they haven't read it (laughs) Sure. You know, because Austin novels have such a variety of endings, you know? <laughs> exactly. What is one thing, in your opinion, that makes this novel special? I think the thing that makes this novel most special is its maturity. Mm-hmm. So as you noted in the intro, this is the last book Jane Austen wrote. And it is therefore also the book she wrote when she was oldest. And it is about her oldest protagonist, you know, Anne is... The ancient and decrepit age of 27. I can't even imagine
0: being that old.
1: I vividly remember the first time I read this book after age 27, and I was like, okay, wow. I feel rude. But in reality, as Charlotte Lucas points out in Pride and Prejudice, 27 is a really advanced age to be unmarried in a society where, like, you have no recourse to independence or comfort or even direction in your life, independent of a husband or, you know, like if you're lucky, a male relative can take you in. So given those circumstances, Anne is facing up against something. But in addition to that, it's such a beautifully somber toned book. And you really get to see so many of Jane Austen's ideas that have kind of been developed all throughout her body of work you get to see them really come to their fullest ripeness here. So in Mansfield Park, you have the incredible biting cynicism about the aristocracy. But because that love story is so unbalanced, you kind of can't inhabit that feeling the same way. Whereas here with this very beautifully built love story, you get that same scathing perspective on rank, where like you you get the full double meaning of it most times you hear it in the book, where it both means hierarchy and where one falls in it and like a rotten smell. (laughs) And the text is very explicitly about sacrificing a world defined by that kind of rank and moving into a space defined instead by meritocracy, that meritocracy being represented by the Navy. Right. And you also see in Anne Elliot, like a type who's come up many times before, you know, like... You can definitely see her antecedent in Eleanor Dashwood. But where Eleanor Dashwood's behavior is kind of blindly valorized, I'd say, in Sense of Sensibility, where it's like, oh, Marianne, like, she's so flighty. But, like, Eleanor, like, she represses her feelings like a good British woman. And isn't she just richly rewarded for it? In this, there is much more introspection and much more change that Anne has to go through before she is ready to have the full love story that she's going to put in front of herself. It is this incredible project of self-definition and it is a very lonely project of self-definition where she just has to take the thing that has served as a mother in her life, Lady Russell. She has to go through that thing that so many of us have to go through where our parents stop being these monoliths. It's not like mom and dad where you're just like, they're unquestioned and they have insight and wisdom and authority and you can just trust in them the way a child does and instead come to perceive her guide as a person just like her and a person with blind spots and prejudices and whose understanding of the world is incomplete. And uh, that's just a really incredible thing to watch happen. So I guess that's that's why I think this book is so special. That's why I respond to it so much.
0: Yeah. So there is like a big scary fall in this novel that (laughs) arguably is like, at least on a plot level, the big moment And I am wondering if you can talk a little bit about that moment and what you think it signifies. It's not the most dramatic thing to happen in an Austen novel, but it's like in the top three to five most dramatic things that happens in an Austen novel.
1: Yeah, especially things that happen in an Austin novel on the page with the point of view characters present, observing it and interacting with it.
0: That's what it is, right? Because Lydia, that doesn't happen on the page. We see Marianne very sick, right? But like, this is up there with that.
1: Yeah. And it's so much more sudden. So the specific incident you're talking about happens about halfway through the book. And it is Anne... And her sister and her young single sisters-in-law have traveled to this beautiful seaside town, Lyme Regis, with Frederick Wentworth and varying other folks in their party. And they're there for a day. And it's this wonderful time of camaraderie. They meet some of Frederick Wentworth's Navy friends for the first time. And it's very harmonious and wonderful. And it's at this point that Frederick Wentworth is leaning towards an engagement with one of the two young Miss Musgroves. And specifically an engagement that is very clearly in his mind structured oppositionally to the one that he had with Anne. Where with Anne, he still resents that she was persuaded to give him up. And what he has emphasized as valuable about young Miss Louisa Musgrove is that she's very determined. She's always set on getting her own way and she won't let anyone talk her out of anything. And he loves her, her willful spirit. So with this setup, we approach this um, seawall in the town where there are sort of like steps between a lower level and an upper level that you can walk down. And Louisa Musgrove thinks it's this very fun game to sort of walk halfway up the steps and then jump off and have Frederick Wentworth catch her. So already like this is, this is a little bit scandalous, but it's not Terrible. And especially because it seems like they're going to get engaged, it's fine. But they're running close to the time they have to leave town. And there's this dispute about whether they're going to do it one more time or not. And Louise is like, Yes, we are. Like, I'm determined. And she jumps, not observing that, like, Frederick is not close enough to catch her. And he runs to try and catch her, but he fails. And she instead just jumps and falls on the ground and is concussed, is unconscious for hours. And what you see in the moments after is you see Anne, really cool-headed and calm, realize all of the things that they need to do to make sure that Louisa's going to be okay. You know, she knows Captain Wentworth, you don't go get the doctor because you don't know this town at all. You know, like, let Captain Hargreaves, who lives here, go get the doctor. You stay here with Louisa in case she wakes up so there's someone she knows with her. And then you get to see her and Captain Wentworth ride home together in the middle of the night. And he's going to have to be the one to tell Louisa's parents. And you hear him appreciate in that moment, the value of a thoughtful person, like the value of someone who is going to observe all of these tiny things and is going to know how to make these really challenging decisions. And I feel like that's something so many of us in our older life have come to appreciate. It's like, When you start really going through it, like really going through the hard parts of life, you know, like watching friends become disabled, watching parents and loved ones age to the point where they can't care for themselves the way they used to. You so quickly recognize the people who can support you, the people whose minds have the capacity to hold those sort of situations and the people who just can't engage with their mortality yet. And can't engage with the mortality of others. And you see that here, but you also see throughout the book, reading Austen with a 21st century lens, one of the things that really jumps out at you is the ableism. You know, there are all these hypochondriacs, quote unquote, throughout the novels, and especially in the case of women generally speaking, being of ill health is equated with being selfish and ill-willed. And it's usually presented as like, oh, this person's faking it to have power or attention. Mm-hmm. And in this book, you actually have like the first disabled character who like has her own life, is a full person, like like a disabled character who is, I'd say one of the more progressive depictions of disability in literature, especially at this moment in time. And that's Anne's school friend, Miss Smith who is not like a Dickensian crippled, quote unquote, orphan, right? Where they're just like pure of heart and you just mourn, you know, the the failure of a society that created them. She's like a 30-something woman. She is of small fortune because she married for love and it worked out to a point, but neither of them were responsible with money. And now she has to be incredibly responsible with money. And she can't leave her house to work. She can't leave her house to socialize because of various different ailments with her body, she's bedbound or homebound and needs to have a nurse come and take care of her. And she's just the same, like, like a gossiping, funny, warm, slightly frivolous person. And like, that is just a completely different depiction of bodily infirmity than what we've seen anywhere else in Austin's work. And I think that that's gotta be directly informed by aging, Right. Because it's like you have one idea of what it is like when the old woman is getting in the way of a young man living the life that he wants to have. You have one idea of what an infirm body means and how it has come by in that sense. And then like suddenly you are 35 and you wake up and every part of your body hurts a little bit, even though you didn't do anything. Like you just, you slept wrong and your whole body hurts and you're like, oh, wow, this ease that I've had moving through the world that was so complete that I never even observed it, that's going away. (laughs) Like I'm never going to get that back again. And so I think in Mrs. Smith, you see what it's like to reckon with how our bodies are going to fail and disappoint us. And how that doesn't reflect a vitality of spirit, you know, that doesn't accord with good or bad people, just happens to everyone, all of us. So those two things I feel are connected. Yeah. Also,
0: I know that diagnosing people from the past is complicated, but there does seem to be a sort of consensus that Austin had Addison's disease, which is an incredibly painful way to die and with a lot of muscle aches and pains. And so I also just think, regardless of whether or not she died of Addison's disease, we know from her letters and from other people's accounts that towards the end of her life, which was she died at 41, she was in a lot of pain. And so I can also just imagine having gone through that experience. Yeah. The hypochondria that she was laughing at with Mr. Woodhouse and Mrs. Bennett is absolutely gone in this novel in a really important way. Yeah. But I'm wondering what you think about within Persuasion, how you think about Mary, one of Anne's two sisters, because Mary is also a character who's always ill. And it's, it's represented very differently than with this, like, sort of compassion and complication. Right. Well,
1: I think that this is something that is actually really strong in Austen across the board, is that there are times when someone is being perceived as silly or self-involved and it is unjust. And we have the information in the text to know it. And then there are other times when someone is being perceived as silly and self-involved. And like, Mm -hmm. that's true. (laughs) And like, that's the thing is it's like, even now, it's like we have a much clearer understanding of how many ailments exist that we just like don't have the methods to track or record the way that like medical science wants us to for things to be considered valid. But even within that, there are still people who are sick because they are disproportionately awake to their own suffering. And I think that that's what you see in Mary. You see a person who is deeply, deeply, deeply awake to her own suffering and lacking what I feel like Austen would depict as the internal resources to just step beyond herself and perceive the world more justly, right? And understand that other people are also inconvenienced at times, and other people also have headaches at times. And she's not the only person in the world. And I think that Austin doesn't give us easy answers. You know, she doesn't say either every hypochondriac is a faker or all people who profess illness are reporting accurately and impartially the experiences they are having in their bodies. She's like, no, there are people who are genuinely sick and then there are people who like the attention one gets from being sick and will call upon it when they need attention because they don't have the understanding to do better
0: and then there's like the third maybe kind of disability which is like war wounds right which is treated totally separately sure So, Margaret, I think that some people think that this novel's romance threshold is quite low until Captain Wentworth Mm -hmm. writes his, like, declaration of love letter. What is your theory on that, and how do you feel about this letter and this, you know, the way the romance ends between Anne and Captain Wentworth?
1: You know, I think that there's validity in that take, that it is one of the more subdued love stories, that it is actually much more an internal story of Anne observing and changing and growing. I I have a hard time referring to novels written before, say, like 19... 15 or thereabouts, I have a hard time referring to them as romance novels, even when they are obviously love stories, because you can't split the marriage plot off from self-definition when you're looking at a time where middle class women had no access to self-definition except through marriage. And this is the Georgette Heyer theory of romance novels,
0: that she is sort of like the first inventor of the genre in the 1910s. Right. Right.
1: Right. Because she is writing from a perspective where what is at stake really is sort of like, who is that woman going to marry in a very like romantic comedy kind of way? And what is at stake is not sort of like, what is this woman's life going to be as a result of who she marries? Right. Is she gonna be homeless? Right. And so here, almost more than a love story, what you are seeing with Anne is a coming of age and a choosing of her own path. She's rare in Austin for having two really compelling options in front of her that she has to choose between, right? Normally, there's really just like the one good option and a lot of bummers. And obviously, Sir Walter Elliot is actually a bummer, but he's a very nuanced bummer. You don't find out what bad news he is until pretty late in the book. And up until that point, it is this very subtle, like Anne knows he's not trustworthy, but she can't express quite why. It's just like she has the power of her perception and this is about her learning to trust the power of her perception over other people's perspectives. But I think the reason that this works so well as a love story is because she earns that letter, which is so beautiful and so wonderful and so satisfying by virtue of sticking up both for herself and for women in general in a conversation with Captain Harville about his friend, Benick, who had been engaged to Harville's sister who died and was very deeply in love with her and is now getting married to someone else. And he's sort of shaken. He's like, you know, women are supposed to be in constant like this, but, you know, I thought the love that Bennick had for Fanny wouldn't die so soon. You know, that this was something that he would carry forever. And Anne is like, well, I don't know that men work that way. And you get to have a moment where he's like, well, all of poetry is on my side. And Anna's like, yeah, and women have never gotten to write poetry, <laughs> right? Like the narrative that exists right now is all written by men. And that's one of the most like straightforwardly feminist sentiments that you're going to find anywhere in Austin. And it is as a result of this conversation, which Frederick Wentworth overhears, that he is finally moved to the point of like confessing that he's still in love with her. And advancing his case, even though he's looking at the scene and he knows it doesn't seem like he's going to be the one she picks. Yeah. So you have this very internal story and then this explosion of romance at the end. And I think it is in that way so affirming to an older person. Right. Because what Anne is being rewarded for is her age, is her understanding, is the complexity she's capable of seeing in the world and is the confidence she's found in her own voice, largely by having to define it against such harsh odds. You know, I I think if she'd been moved into the consequence of a married woman at 17, she might not have developed this confidence. She might have been sort of taken into the family and not been able to continue observing the world and commenting on it and that she's being rewarded for that time, right, rather than discarded for her age. As someone hoping to be rewarded for my time and not discarded for my age, it speaks to me, you know? (laughs) So, Margaret, we
0: have to wrap up, but I have one more
1: question for you.
0: Every once in a while, you meet someone who's a big Austin fan and they say very proudly Persuasion is my favorite Austen novel. When you meet those people, I don't even know, you might be one of those people. (laughs) What is your reaction? What do you immediately know about them? Oh, it just feels like a secret handshake,
1: Yeah, right? Like, I think Persuasion is your favorite Austen novel if you've read all of Austen novels more than once. Mm -hmm. It's not the flashiest. It's not the funniest. But it is... In this way, it's like there's this quiet undertow that's present in all of the other novels and that really comes to fruition in this one. And when you appreciate it in the context of her other work, it's just kind of undeniable. So that's the primary thing I take away. They've read these books a bunch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, so I'm in the middle of rereading these books either for the second, third, or fourth time, depending. And Mm -hmm. so far, Northanger is still my favorite. And we'll just figure out what that means about me. It might mean that I'm a basic,
1: basic girl, but I don't think it does. It's an unconventional opinion. And I will say, like, Persuasion is my favorite novel, but Henry Toney is my Austin boyfriend. He's so charming. It's not even a competition. He's so charming. He's the only one who gets to be funny. Yes. Yeah. And it makes such a difference.
0: And I love Catherine. Anne is a woman who has figured herself out. And Catherine Mm -hmm. is a woman who desperately wants to figure herself out. And I just love that about Catherine because I'm like, me too. Me too, Catherine.
1: (laughs) I think what it means is that you're persistently young at heart.
0: (laughs) Persistently afraid that I haven't figured out how to be a person yet. (laughs) Margaret, thank you so much for talking about Persuasion with me. An absolute delight. And Patreon, thank you so much for your support in going on this rereading of Austin journey with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Vanessa. It's a delight. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
0: Hi, everybody! I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value wonder imagination grief and courage if you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends then this class is for you register before the first class on june 23rd by going to not that's n-o-t-s-o-r-r-y w-o-r-k-s.com